0: Um, we're off air, right? People running round, looking bones into the ground As everyone just trying to be first
1: If you see me
0: falling down from the buildings
1: in the clouds Would you catch me for this bubble burst?
2: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back if you're a longtime listener, and simply welcome if this is your first time listening to the Discover Your Inner Awesome podcast. My name is Rajiv Nathan, a.k.a. The Raj Nation. I am your co-host, and I am alongside my co-host, Martin McGovern, a.k.a. Marty McFly. This is Discover Your Inner Awesome, the only show where you get to eavesdrop on conversations with entrepreneurs, artists, and musicians, about the stories, the journeys, the struggles, but most importantly, the questions. The questions that help us all better understand who we are, what we're doing, and how we can do it better. In this episode, we sit down with one of my favorite people in the world, Todd Connor. Todd is the founder and CEO of Bunker Labs, a nonprofit organization that helps military veterans start and grow businesses, as well as the co-founder of Flank 5 Academy, an organization that specializes in career fulfillment and executive training. We sit down with Todd and talk about a topic that quite frankly applies to everyone, and that is the topic of partnerships. Specifically, we ask the question, how do you manage partnerships? Before we dive into the episode, I want to let you know you can join our tribe of amazing people where you will never miss another episode of this show simply by going to our new website at www.discoveryourinnerawesome.com, enter your email address there, you'll become a member of the tribe, and you'll get an email every Monday when we release a new episode of the show. All right, let's dive into our conversation now with Todd Connor asking the question, how do you manage partnerships? Let's listen in
0: okay, let's talk about partnerships.
2: Um, I
0: think there's a few global things I would say. One is, I think you have to get partnerships to succeed in whatever it is that you're doing. Um, if you're running for office, you need endorsements of other politicians, you need you know coalition groups, you need community groups, you need organizing groups to come together and you know they have to sort of people have to come with you. If you're starting a business, you probably need partnerships. You definitely need customers. I think customers, you know, customers are a partnership. We'll talk more about that. Uh, If you're starting a nonprofit, you definitely need partnerships. So I, I can't imagine a scenario in which somebody, particularly who's starting out and as well as for those kind of organizations that are already in existence, you can't imagine a scenario in which you do not need partnerships. Um, I think that's the first point I would say, which is not necessarily intuitive to most people. Like I think there there are some people that don't think it, that they need partnerships uh, and that it's sort of go it alone. And I just don't think you can. Now on the flip side, then the question becomes what are the right partnerships and then who are the right partners? And those are, I think the more difficult, nuanced questions. Um, Let me just kind of hit some highlights and let's talk. I see a lot of people waste a lot of time on partnerships. So partnerships for the sake of partnerships are net-net are harmful because it's actually a distraction from your core mission. Um, great partnerships are huge accelerators of a mission. I think the challenge and the difference between a good partnership and a bad partnership is as an organization, understanding exactly where you're trying to go. And this is, in my view, particularly with a lot of the entrepreneurs that we work with and even in our own experiences, this is where people fall down. So if I'm a nonprofit, that's like, let's take a real example. Like I run a nonprofit that helps military veterans start businesses. In theory, we could have tons of partnership conversations. I could, I could literally fill my week with other veteran nonprofits that are doing mental health. That's not productive. Um, I'm not in the mental health care space. we're in the entrepreneurship space. Um, I wanna know of those organizations, maybe we can exchange emails and sort of like have each other registered, but the, the need to sort of like do site visits and like let's schedule a three hour meeting, let's talk about it, let's explore. These are, these can be euphemisms for just like let's, just, let's waste time together. Um, and I, I've seen a lot of people uh, just do that, waste a lot of time on conversations That are sort of exploratory in nature, um, that don't yield anything. Now on the flip side, I understand you gotta be open, right? So, so I think part of being a smart entrepreneur is being, is, is being exploratory in terms of like having a, having a lens for like this, this could be productive or this, this is likely not going to be, um, on the flip side, a great partnership is one in which there's an equal value exchange. So partnerships to me are about value and value being exchanged between two entities. And a good partnership is, is one in which the value being exchanged is equal. So we're a nonprofit. We've got big corporate sponsorship from organizations like JPMorgan Chase. You know, they are sponsoring us with $1.5 million to really support our growth strategy. And they do it as part of their kind of corporate social responsibility. But I'll tell you what I think about all the time is how do we deliver $1.5 million in value back to Morgan Chase? And you might kind of say, well, how, that's, that's ridiculous. There's no way you can do that. You're a not-for-profit. You know, they're, you're the charity. They're giving you the money. Like, it's a value gift. Um, but I view, I view it differently. I view it as a value exchange. And so then the question is, well, how do you actually deliver value back to a company like Morgan Chase? There's a lot of ways. We do a bunch for employee engagement. Like, we're very intentional about bringing their employees over... Helping them judge pitch competitions, bringing events to JPMorgan Chase, bringing media, bringing politicians, connecting our politicians with their intergovernmental affairs folks. You know, I spoke at a leadership conference last week about sales, and um, and so these kinds of things. When you sort of bundle, at least this is my hope, and you know they, they're the ultimate judge of this. But like, you know, my hope is that with a partnership like that, that we really do deliver back like an equivalent amount of value that they would say, you know, hey, $1.5 million, like it's, it, it's money well spent. In addition to it being charitable, it's we've realized an equal kind of amount of value for what came back. So, and that's just one example. And they're a f- fantastic partner and we have other fantastic partners. And again, we're, I'm always thinking intentionally about what's the value exchange between us and those partners. I think they feel very strongly about, about sponsoring us because they, they do sense that we care about this being a value exchange. So partnerships matter. Everyone's got to have them. Um, great partnerships are an equal value exchange between two parties. Um, bad partnerships are the ones in which either of the two organizations does not know what they're trying to do and therefore can't possibly answer the question, "Is this going to be a value? Is this going to be an equal value exchange?" So I think the skill set for people listening is how do you develop that sensitivity? Number one, to figure out what are you trying to do and, and being really explicit with that. And then number two, figuring out you know, who are the other uh, partners that are have an equal sense of focus and responsibility to, that they're focused on. And then you know, how do I find those people where we can actually crack a deal that looks like equal value transfer?
2: Yeah, I like this. And this is something I've kind of been preaching a lot recently as well is this idea of having a value-based mindset and value-based networking. And I say that because there are a lot of people who go into an interaction thinking only what can I get from that other person or that other group or organization, not what can I give to them. And when you go in looking with looking from a lens of just, all right, what do I need from them? And how do I get it? You Mm -hmm. automatically put yourself in a position of, uh, not begging, but like closer on that end of the spectrum than anything else. And generally, you know, as people, we don't just, you you know, we want to be charitable and everything, but like, if you've ever met someone who is looking for a job and like the first, one of the first things they say to you is, yeah, I'm looking for a job. Can you help me? you don't really want to help that person because it's like, whoa, back off. We don't even know each other yet. Mm -hmm. Versus when you go into an interaction and you say, you just think or have the mindset, what can I provide this person or this group that would be helpful to them? It just puts, it it changes the dynamic of that relationship completely. Yeah. I think it's totally right. And thinking about this in the context of jobs is
0: super appropriate because you're right it's the exact same thing with a candidate somebody who's, who's looking for a job they assume that the power dynamic is the employer has the power i am the candidate and really what i'm hoping for is that like they like me and like i get lucky and like i get the job right and you're exactly right which is that, that that's the wrong mentality it's it's very much you know employment is very much about a value exchange i mean yeah you know, I, the candidate am giving my talent, the company is giving financial resources. Um, and then, you know, then there's some sort of like kind of contractual relationship there. I think where, um, where people looking for jobs fall down is when they don't really know what am I, what am I here to do and what, what is the value that I bring and, um, I think for people looking for jobs, and we talk to military veterans a lot that are looking for jobs, and we work, you know, Flint Five Academy, the business I started, works very much with people in kind of career transition, career growth. And we really think it's important for people to articulate, like, what are you really good at? And what is the value that you're bringing? And having a real definition of self worth that's honest. Um, because if we view this as charity, then we're never going to kind of receive the charity, you know. So it's just not going to come like that. And so, for people looking for jobs that are stuck, I mean, I think approaching this, approaching an employer from a standpoint of here's what I know I'm really good at, and here's what I know you need, and so let's talk about value value exchange. Like that's just a whole different mentality than going and saying, I hope they give me this job. Um, and it's the same thing with people that are running uh, organizations. You know, I think you've got to have a sense of what the value is that you bring, you know, and even like with us, with corporate sponsors, with the bunker, you know, I'm sensitive to the fact that, you know, we're a, we're a new nonprofit, right? In theory, we've got kind of everything to lose, but I also realize that we do things that are of value, right? For sponsors and uh, particularly sponsors. I mean, if it's a foundation, they've made a commitment to helping impact military veterans. They need organizations that can effectively do that, right? So, I'm, I mean, I feel like I'm able to approach these conversations with a state of confidence to say, like, I understand the value that we're bringing, let's understand the value that you're bringing, and like, let's let's figure out how to create a value exchange that's equal. Um, and I think that's that's definitely something that people looking for jobs um, have to be really mindful of. There's nothing, it's hard, because when people are, have been unemployed and they feel deflated, it, I totally get, I mean, I'm super empathetic for why it's hard to sort of approach and say, "Here's what I'm, here's what I'm skilled at." Um, but I think that that is super important. Now, on the flip side, what you represent to be skilled at, you actually have to be good at, you know. And I think that's that's the flip side of this too, is like a self awareness that as an organization, you're really doing it right. You know, like you've really got to be good. It can't just be about what you say. It's got to be about like what are you actually doing, and is the impact there, and is the, you know, is the skill set there. But if it is, then there's there's a, a there's a value exchange that can take place.
1: Yeah. And that's tough because for a lot of the people that we talk to, especially in career transitions and and what you're saying, it's like, you really have to know yourself and what you want clearly before you bring in more voices. Um, And I think for anyone who's starting a business or who's trying to find a job, uh, they're still trying to figure out, you know, sort through all the hundreds of voices in their own head. And then you bring a partner in and you've got you know all the voices in that person's head and let's say you partner up with a couple of folks now you've got a group of people all with different voices in their heads and then when it all comes pouring into the middle everyone just gets confused and i think that's kind of what you're getting at here it's like get your house right and then bring in the partners to to do certain things in it
0: that's so true that's so true and people um people often skip that step and they do it at their own peril they go straight into partnership or worse yeah they 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 can Blame the partners. They can say, you know, like we're we're losing because our partners aren't helping. And there are, um, just to give the analogy back to the veteran nonprofit space, there are 40,000 veteran nonprofits in the United States, approximately. There's actually more than that. 70% of them have revenue less than $100,000, which basically means they're not achieving any scale. They're not, I don't think, Able to do anything of much impact, you know, other than probably hire a person um, or do something kind of hyper local in nature. And um, a lot of those organizations and entrepreneurs that I think are stuck in neutral, or even like people that are stuck in neutral around their careers, I think uh, they're kind of like in a frenzied look for like partners because they view that as a laddering up activity. Like they've kind of heard that mantra, like you should get a partner, Um, but they haven't done the work to define their value proposition. Like specifically, what, here is what my organization does. Um, this is what we're great at. And part of defining that, by the way, is knowing what you don't do. And I think this is a challenge for people that are looking for employment, or if you're running an organization, if you're looking for partners, there's nothing worse than the answer, what are you, what are you interested in doing? And saying, I'm, I'm really open to anything. Because what that, all that signals is that you haven't done the work to figure out like, what are you here to do? Um, one of the things I love doing is, uh, is when people come to us and they say, well, let's talk about, I don't love doing it, but I, I I do do it, which is people come to us and they say, well, let's, we want to involve you in a conversation about, you know, you know, active duty, you know, operate, you know, operating tempos in the Middle East. It's like, we don't do that. You know, like we're just very quick to understand that we are for the Bunker Labs at least, an organization that focuses on veteran entrepreneurship. And if it's not that, like please articulate before we waste each other's time like, what you think the opportunity could be. And um, ironically, uh, it's not ironic, actually. It's, it's the way it works. People are way more compelled when you have that, that sense of focus uh, because people understand that you're really serious about what you're doing. You're probably good at it. You know, you know what you're doing. You know why you're doing it um and then they, they know that you're cultivating a core expertise that can be specialized. Nobody hires a person to be a generalist. Nobody funds a nonprofit for general reasons. Nobody hires a company for general reasons. We all we all exchange value as employees, as nonprofits, as giving organizations, giving to nonprofits, as companies. We all exchange value for very specific reasons. And so we cannot kind of move out into the world in this sort of general sense of looking for opportunity, open to anything. Like, I think I need partners to get there. Um, we, we've got to do the work. We've got to be introspective. We've got to figure out like what it is that we're trying to do. And that that isn't, I mean, I think a large part why the 70% of nonprofits that haven't pierced $100,000, they just haven't figured out how to do that yet. They haven't figured out what it is that they're actually trying to do. And then there's operational pieces of that as well, which is like, how do you get to scale? But in um, and how, and how do you ensure that you're actually being effective? But uh so what home. do you,
1: what do you say to someone who says that they want to be a Jack of all trades?
0: I just push back on that. Um, well, I mean, I, I would probe, I would say, well, what does that look like for you? Um, and I, and I would say you can be a jack of all trades, but don't expect anybody to pay you to be a jack of all trades. Why would, I, <laughs> I would say, you know, Sort of like why would I like give that to me? You know, if it's an employment conversation, it's like give that to me in an employment context. Um, and I think that there is, by the way, a way to do this. You know, but you've got to describe this. I mean, I think somebody can go to an employer and say, "Look, here's exactly the kind of role I play. Imagine a fifteen-person project." with across five different departments with totally compressed deadlines. And there's a million different things that have to happen. And none of them fit neatly in a job description. It's everything from booking hotel rooms to making a PowerPoint, to organizing a meeting, to negotiating contracts. Like I can do all of those things. Like that's, that's really compelling. That's a, you know, that could be a jack of all trades sort of scenario, but it's in a hyper-specific context where you go to an employer and be like, Like this is the kind of thing I want to do. And by the way, how do you know it's a good answer is if you can answer in the reverse, which is what do you not want to do? So that also means you've got to own that identity. So in, in a conversation with an employer, that also means, so I'm great in that 15 person chaotic Jack of all trades scenario, by the way, like I do not want to sit in a, in in a job with with a specifically defined role. Like that's not me. Like I need to be on the 15 person project in the center of it, coordinating a variety of activities. You know, like I think that can be super compelling. What's not sufficient is I'm interested in anything because I'm a jack of all trades.
2: Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there's a few things that you've said here that uh, really resonate with me. And I think, so first off on the jack of all trades thing, and the other part of it too is you can be skilled at several things, but you don't need to necessarily front every conversation with here's everything that I do, pick what you want. It's mm-hmm. like, look at, like, like, be strategic about who you're talking to and, and what they need and figure out which one of your trades best suits that conversation. And then later on, if it makes sense to bring up one of your other trades, you can do that. Right. And, and th- that's generally how I've gone about things because people have labeled me jack of all trades before, just because I do like, you know, eight different things. Um, I, I tend to lump it all under storytelling and communication But, you know, like, I don't, like, for instance, last night at the Bunker Labs graduation night, I was talking to the Comcast sponsor rep, Jason, and I was telling him what I did with Bunker, and we were talking for, you know, a solid 15, 20 minutes, and then towards the end of that conversation, because it had happened, something had been said, I had mentioned, oh, yeah, I'm also a yoga instructor, and he was like, oh, wow, that's really interesting. But I wasn't, like, going into that conversation being like, I need to tell him I'm a yoga instructor, (laughs) It was right. the conversation, uh, just enabled that, that, for that to be said. And it, you know, it wasn't like me trying to come to him and be like, you have to know that I do all these things and I do all the, I do some of them well and some of them not so well. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, and, and I think, you know, yeah, it's really interesting to me it, because again, all of us do do several things, right? Like I'm, you know, yeah. Like we're all wearing multiple hats in life. We're, we all are doing different things. um, But to your point, we we don't need to represent all those things in a conversation. Here's, let me, let me be more tactical about why this works this way. So two different points. First of all, again, if you're viewing this as a value exchange, right? So if you say to yourself, here's the, here's the way the world works. If I can present an equal amount of value and then they can present an equal amount of value for each other to solve some specific need for each other, the deal is going to happen. Like the deal is always going to happen if that value exchange can be defined so if that's true then the real point is in a conversation with a prospective employer or prospective customer the onus is on us not to sell but to listen because all we're trying to do is to figure out what's the value that you need right so the least strategic thing we can do which is what everybody always does is lead with. Let me tell you about all my credentials, mm-hmm. and then let me put it on you to try to figure out and map like where the value exchange might be. Um, the more strategic thing is to say, like we're talking with a company, what is it that you need right now? What's going well? What's painful? What are you worried about? You know, talk to me about the the, the best employees you have. Talk to me about some of the folks that are not meeting your needs. Why is that? You know, like I mean, to to listen and treat conversations like an interview in order to define the value exchange is is the more strategic way to do it. Um, and and I have a 70% rule. Like if I'm if I'm in a quote unquote sales mode, I do I let the I try to let the other person do 70% of the talking. And that doesn't matter if it's a nonprofit, if it's a funder for the nonprofit or if it's a customer. It's like it's all about listening to their needs because the more I listen, the more specifically I can define the value that I can bring to, to meet their specific needs. And then the quicker we can get to that kind of equity of value exchange. So that's the first point is that this whole process demands listening more than it does talking. Yeah. Um, you uh, know, and then, and then well, I was just going to say, and then the other thing is um, the more specific, so this is more tactical, but the more specific you are, the easier it is to make referrals to the people that can be helpful. And the more, the easier it is to help people. Let me give you an example. This, this happened last, last week, uh, or a few weeks ago. And one of the guys, you know, you know, so talk to three people, um, a couple of them sort of looking for like general advice, like, Hey, like I'm open to opportunities. I'm thinking I'm interested in either finance or consulting, you know, I'm, I'm open. I, it's hard for somebody who in theory can kind of make that a referral for that person. Like I probably actually do. I mean, I'm sure I do, you know know lots of people that are the right people, but it was too hard to figure out. Like it's too much of a lift to figure out if there's you know a million meetings in the day. Like, okay, let me, let me stop and try to figure out for this person that told me kind of two broad categories that they're interested in. Like, let me stop and think about who I should refer to. I had somebody else I talked to that said, hey, I'm really interested in, doing uh management consulting in the kind of construction industry and here's the three companies that would be ideal to talk to because i really am interested in these kinds of building projects and like gave three or four examples and you know and like was hyper specific i made you know introductions for that person because because i immediately in the conversation was like oh my gosh you got to talk to this guy this guy this guy like it was top of mind and so the hyper specificity so people often go into the job search process or go into a customer acquisition process thinking I've got to be open to any opportunity. And that is, I think the counterintuitive but more strategic thing is to go into that conversation with a hyper-specific need. The reality is other opportunities will present themselves, but if you don't lead with something that's as specific as like, I want to do management consulting in the construction industry with these middle market firms that are based in Chicago working on these kinds of problems. There are these kinds of projects if you don't have that level of specificity, I like the person on the other side of the conversation isn't going to be able to to help you. Um, so listening is more important and then being specific is, is I think also really important to this.
2: Yeah, You're hitting on so many things that I think Martin and I have learned, you know, like trial by fire over the last year or so. And Mm -hmm. the specificity of it is so key because, um, for the the time that we had idea lemon, we just weren't specific enough, and mm-hmm. Martin, you'll agree with this. the number of meetings and random conversations we had that were those exploratory partnership conversations that never led anywhere was like I mean I, probably more than my two hands and my two feet you could count on because we didn't we didn't draw a line in the sand and say this is what this is what we do this is what." This is exactly who we're for. And we wasted a lot of time because, well, anyone could be a potential partner then. So let's just take any meeting possible and not really know what we can provide to them. And then they don't really know what they can provide to us. So it's kind of like, all right, well, we'll keep you in mind for future opportunities. And that never pans out to anything. Right.
1: Yeah, I think, sorry, go
0: ahead. No, no, I was just going to endorse it and say, and, and just to say, like, I've learned all this trial by fire. I've, I've only, I only have such a strong point of view for how many times I've gotten it wrong and how many hours I've wasted. <laughs> um, what were you gonna say, Martin?
1: Oh, and I, I mean, when I'm thinking about all this stuff, uh, what really stands out to me is um, like committees. Whenever you're on a committee, uh, I just sort of see a lot of what we're saying here kind of comes down to not putting in the upfront work or not wanting to take on the responsibility of picking something cause it might be wrong. And whenever I'm on a, on, in like a, a, a group where, uh, you know, you just need a leader who will make a decision, but no one wants to be that leader who has all the responsibility put on them. Cause if it fails, then they're the person to blame. So then they're like, all right, well, we need more than one person to lead this committee, but you can't have two people cause then that's a stalemate. So now you've got three people. And now you've got three people who are all splitting up the blame. Um, but the problem is, is getting three people in a room is harder than getting one person to make a decision. So then, you know, and, and I was actually just, there's a committee that I'm a part of right now, and now they want to bring in two more people, because what if those three can't show up? And so now there's going to be five people making this decision. But getting coordination between five people is going to make it even harder. But hey, it's no, one, it's, no it's not any one person's fault if the whole thing falls through. So... It's almost one of these things where uh, you know people say I want to be a jack of all trades because they're scared or or lazy or nervous to pick one thing and be wrong, and people want a committee. Uh, you know, death by committee is the is that common phrase because they don't want to be the one who's wrong, or they're or they're too scared or lazy to actually go forward and just like put it out there and see what happens. And I think that's really interesting. Of like, what is the mentality that causes us to run away from these things?
2: Mm-hmm. yeah there is yeah go ahead well i was gonna say and i think when you talk about um how do you find those people or those other organizations who are going to really help you like what you talked about before was these partners should be ones who accelerate your mission a lot of that comes back when you don't find those partners those those organizations or those people a lot of that comes back to on your own end like are you articulating that mission and does your own team, or do you personally actually have the steps necessary, do you know the steps to achieve that mission and know how a partner would help make that happen? Like Martin and I were talking, we were on a panel yesterday for this event um, with the Chicago Cultural Alliance, and we were speaking on team building and most of the people in the crowd worked at nonprofit organizations and I, told them to all actually look at bunker labs as an example of who's doing it right. But what we, what I had said to them was so many nonprofit organizations think that their cause is so noble that business rules don't apply to them because whatever, they're serving some greater good. So they don't actually focus on, and you mentioned, you know what? 70% of military or veteran based nonprofits make less than a hundred thousand dollars. and, I have to believe for at least a good percentage of them, they are not focused on the fact that like revenue is the goal at the end of the day, because that's what enables them to actually serve that cause. And if there's not alignment internally, whether it's a one-man one team or a multi-person team, if you don't understand like what's that ultimate money goal to be able to do these things you're trying to say, or to be able to do these things you say you want to do, then when you talk with these partners and everything, you're not looking at it in a lens of how are they going to help me get to that goal? You're just looking at it in a lens of, well, let's check. Cause maybe we can help. I know.
0: Yes. And I, I can't imagine anybody that's been successful that hasn't sort of been down this journey of learning these, these things. Um, and it's hard. I mean, I think it's, it's hard with employees and with partners, you know, the bunker labs is a pretty distributed, I mean, national network of chapter leaders and, the you know the million dollar so there's a few pitfalls that I'll amplify based on what you guys said one is that people really need to understand the difference between correlation with success and causation of success um and we have attracted you know a lot of people that um want to be part of you know kind of the enthusiastic mission of helping military veterans start businesses but um but, but may, may not you know, may struggle. I mean, there are folks that I think just want to have kind of the conversation. Like there are people that want to just sit and have coffee all day and like talk about it. And, you know, I'm not one of those people, like I, I want to get it done. Um, but there are people that do just want to sort of like, you know, kind of, you know, I think are stuck in neutral around having kind of just death by coffee conversation without like a real intent of where they're trying to go. And um, And they're not bad people, you know, but it's not going to move the organizational goals forward. Um, and so you've got to really have a hypersensitivity to like, are we making progress, or are we just talking? And that's where things like you know committees and initiatives and kind of partnership thats like a partnership without like a strategic intent um, can be the death knell of startups or of organizations because they're not you're just not going to get anything done. And I, and I think that's, those are tough conversations, but um, they're, they're conversations that, that people have to have if they're going to be successful. And, you know, and that's, that's a lot of the stuff that I think, you know, my time has spent coaching people on, which is like, what are you trying to do here? And how do you know if you're going to make progress? And a lot of what we do in a distributed environment is we just, we just hold people accountable to their own goals. And we speak of goals as outcomes, not activities. Um, Mm -hmm. but there's a big distinction that's important to this conversation of strategic partnerships about, do you understand the difference between you're moving the ball forward and you're just having conversations and you're busy because any of us can be busy. Like any of us can fill our inbox. Any of us can have meetings all day. And like, that is not progress. And so part of this, like, again, in this conversation is being very specific about what's the destination. How do I measure progress? What is the value exchange with the people I'm bringing into the process? If there's no value exchange there, then like, let's cut bait and move on uh, and, being, and staying super, super focused.
1: Yeah. And I think, I think one of the really interesting pieces is uh, you attract like-minded people. So if you're unclear, you're going to attract people who are unclear. And if you're focused, you're going to attract people who are focused. So as we talk about these partnerships, if you want to wor- be doing work with partners who are super focused to get shit done, you've also got to be super focused and get shit done. Otherwise, they're going to get frustrated with you or you're just not going to be able to talk to them in the first place. Yeah, I know.
0: And it's tough. And I I will also say it's, I, you know, you'll, you'll end up with folks that are not making progress. Their instinct can be to want to play victim and even to whine and, you know, and sort of say like, Well, like we're trying to have partnerships, but nobody, you know, everyone's, everyone's selfish or nobody wants to have partnerships. You know, those, that's just not true. I mean, if you're a good organization that's, that has something of value to offer, people will want to be in partnership with you. If you don't have something of value to offer, people will not want to be in partnership with you. And, um, it's not, you know, I think people kind of want to believe that it's just about like getting discovered or noticed, like, like auditioning for like America's Got Talent. Like I hope somebody just swoops in and discovers me and picks me. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, and that that's the difference between those that succeed and those that do not, you know, it's really not. If you, if you had something of value, um, people will find you and they will want to sort of find ways to exchange that, exchange the value that you got with the, with the value that, that they have, which is what partnership is. And so, um, Yeah, and it's tough because, I mean, yeah, I've heard from a lot of people who really they kind of can flip to like a complaint mentality. Like, well, people don't like the partner and blah, blah, blah. And it's not our fault. It's like everybody else's fault but theirs. And, you know, it's like that's a dangerous, toxic mentality that is um, that is really not going to be productive. What is productive is to be introspective of like, huh, you know, because here's what they're really saying. People don't think I have anything of value to offer. It's like, that's the real statement. So then the question is like, how, how do you react to that? You know, like, how do you process that? And how do you internalize that? And how do you, um, how do you create something, you know, how do you adapt? You know, if that, if that's in fact the raw, the raw message, people are never going to deliver that message. Um, but that's sort of what they're signaling. If, if, if the intent is like not to move forward, um, what they're signaling is, I don't think that there's value exchange here. Um, cause I'm not clear on what the value you bring to this is. And so, um. Yeah, but the good news is, I think because that all sounds kind of you know I think negative, but the good news is that anybody, if you do create value, all of the partnership opportunities are available, and the more specific you get, the better off you're going to be. And I, and I believe that being small in this context is a really great asset because it allows you to be hyper specific. Um, I think being a solopreneur uh, and or being a nonprofit and having a micro-focused mission is, is a great way to go. I was, I was with a guy yesterday who uh, I'm a huge fan of, Sam Pressler. He's in D.C. He's affiliated with our Bunker chapter out there. And he started an organization basically doing stand-up comedy for wounded veterans. Huh. And it's amazing because he's now nationally known in the veteran space because there's 40,000 veterans doing you know organizations, a lot of them doing sort of like general kind of we're not sure exactly what. His mission is super focused. And as a result, he's got a ton of traction. Because this idea of stand-up comedy for wounded veterans, it's just like such a brilliant specific thing. And then it's easy for him to go to organizations like the Comedy Channel and establish partnerships. It's easy for him to go to celebrities like Jon Stewart and establish partnership because he's so focused and because it's so specific. Um, so that, I think there's a metaphor there for like, all of us. So the good news is that when you are specific, when you have set that intent, um, I think you can move incredibly fast to achieving your goals, which is definitely something that Sam is doing with his organization in DC.
2: Well, and what's, you know, as you're kind of saying those things, what's kind of jogging up in my mind is, um, and a lot of this, like you said, like this comes from learning experiences, right? This comes from saying <laughs> yes to everything and then being like, well, wait, <laughs> that wasted a lot of time. Now, why do I need to say no to? But what I've kind of kind of, just seen in my own uh, journey over the last few months that honestly is bug, has, has bugged me is, like, let's just take yesterday, for example, uh, Martin and I spoke at that Chicago Cultural Alliance session. Honestly, the second after I said yes to that and I committed to it, I was like, why did I just say yes to this? This has nothing to do, like, it was a session on team building. I'm not trying to build an organization that helps with team building. I... I don't really like, like, yeah, I have things of value to say, but I could probably use my time much better elsewhere. No Mm. one in this audience is my audience, even for the thing I'm trying to do. So there's no like really ancillary way that this is going to make sense. And I think, you know, I just kind of like jumped on it. It's like, Oh, speaking opportunity. I like speaking. Let me do that. And, and like, as fun as it was to do it yesterday, I was like, I remember like, going into it and afterwards, I was like, like, why did I just waste like two hours, three hours of my day just because I could? And then even kind of backpedaling a little bit before that, um, Martin and I and uh, one other friend of ours also had an opportunity to guest lecture a uh, DePaul entrepreneurship class for a few, uh, a few sessions, um, like four different classes, mm-hmm. um, while the entrepreneurship professor I had, it was his class it was, uh, while I was there as a student he was in China for a couple weeks, so he asked us if we would you know, guest lecture his class while he was gone. And on the one hand, it's like, yeah, I'm very grateful for that opportunity. It was an honor to be able to do that, and, and I had a lot of fun. At the same time, what went through my mind, and, I don't, and there's no malice on his end, he actually you know, asked us because he's like, you guys will do a good job at this. But at the same time, what was going through my mind like, as that was happening was, why didn't he ask anyone else to do this, any other entrepreneurs he knows to do this? Is it because he knows they are specifically nose to the ground or nose to the grindstone working on something and they couldn't possibly bear the time to, to do this, you know, for four days for over two weeks. And again, it was a good experience. It was fun. I got, you know, I got a lot out of it personally, but that's what I've started to think about more is just talk about the exploratory talk about not being specific and wasting time. I'm like, I look at that and I'm like, there's a there's a reason here yeah one on the one end yeah he thought we'd do a good job and I'm speaking for myself Martin not for you you know um I don't know if you think about this differently but for me I'm just like "Ah, why would he have chosen me out of everyone he knows additionally he's like well hey Raj probably has the time to do this because uh he's not working on anything super specific right now Mm -hmm. and that just like it started to like really bother me and it's put me on this path of like, let me get actually like very specific now moving forward. And uh, over the last few days, I actually have written down a business plan novel concept, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, (laughs) and it's nice now, because now I'm getting into the mindset of like, like I I had a call with a prospective client earlier this week. And for context, you know, my venture now is helping businesses uh, with storytelling as it relates to them pitching clients. So my Mm -hmm. specific target customer is, B2B service organizations, like marketing, PR, ad agencies, mm-hmm. and B2B SaaS companies. So they're selling a technology that requires you know multiple rounds of pitching to, to win a client. And you know, the, the name of the venture is Raj Nation Innovation. And as I'm talking on the phone, and I'm learning about their needs, and I'm saying, well, here's where I help. They're like, okay, and when you say innovation, does that include, like, uh, do you help with product development, And if this was me like a year ago, hell, probably even like a few months ago, I would have said, yeah, I can help with that too. But this Mm -hmm. time I was like, no, that's outside of my boundaries. I know people who would be great for that if you're interested in that conversation. Mm
0: -hmm. Yes, this is a common thing. And I get the self-loathing. And don't be too hard on yourself. I mean, I think that cultivation of that sensitivity is in fact progress um and like i think honor that like i i talk a lot i mean i'll even say explicitly like to a lot of the entrepreneurs i'm like i wish there was a module that we could give you to just teach you like what has taken me years to learn which is like what's going to be a giant waste of your time versus like what's strategic um (laughs) And I'm like, I don't know that we can do that in a module. I call it savvy, like savviness. And I, it's funny because even uh, Justin, who kind of runs the Epic program and you know runs the Chicago chapter, I mean, I sort of said this to him because he was, you know, when he he came to the bunker straight out of the Navy. And I told him, uh, I was like, look, your learning curve is going to be. I mean, there's a lot of things going on. I mean, you're you're transitioning out of the military. You were in special forces. You're, you know, trying to you know starting your own business. You're trying to figure out how to acclimate in the civilian world and you're helping to do this. I mean, there's a lot going on. I said, but the biggest thing that you will, you will learn is to go from being naive in the, in this, in the context of this conversation, which is like, what's strategic, what are strategic relationships look like? Like what do strategic partnerships look like, which to me is so critical. So I was like, you know, you're going to go from naive to savvy, which is, cultivating that fine-tuned sense of like this is not worth my time you know what i mean like this is a diversion from my focus Mm -hmm. this is not in line with our strategy um i said and you're gonna get there but i don't know how long it's gonna take you and i don't think that you can learn it except by doing it and it's amazing because he is just completely he just totally has that now you know and it's amazing to watch (laughs) yeah he's a machine and he's really like i you know i mean he can get an email, I can get an email and can both look at the email and say this is just not going to be productive like you just almost know like this is somebody that's out of state it's not going to be relevant you you know like we could have a nice conversation but I think one of the things that we've had to learn and I think everybody has to learn is sort of like the art of the nice no which is like no (laughs) but but doing it in a nice way that's like you know hey you know not like not It's not to be jerks. It's just like, oh, like, hey, I think what you're doing is great. You know, we're heads down right now. But as you continue to define, you know, what you're doing or as you have proof of your success, like, come back and let's talk. Um, And I think that's really important is, like, to come up with some of those sort of stock – I would say stock answers, but sort of just you have to also get efficient at at seeing – you know, whether it's going to make sense or not. And then, you know, and then approaching others with that same sense of hypersensitivity. Um, And that's a mindset shift for a lot of people, but I, I, you know, I don't know, it's hard. I don't know if there's a quicker way to get there, but I do think that that's the savviness that experienced entrepreneurs have learned. I mean, they have all learned like this sort of, they've cultivated a sensitivity to like, this is going to be a waste of my time to this. There's something of strategic intent that could be here.
1: Yeah, and I, I love the fact that you gave him space to do that, too. I mean, right now we're doing a podcast and people are listening to this. And the whole idea of podcasts and the whole idea of workshops and the whole idea of all these things that we create is to help people accelerate that learning. But at the end of the day, I agree with you. It's, you know, unless we had gone through and built Idea Lemon, we wouldn't know the things that we know today. And we wouldn't be able to. I, it's not a zero to 60 sort of a thing. It's it's something that you need space, time and a place to keep those learning processes going.
0: Yeah. I love the thing too that, let me amplify this. So Raj, you said something that is, maybe you've said it before, but I hadn't heard it, but in the context of storytelling, so I've always sort of had you in the brand of storytelling, but what you said this time in describing storytelling is way more provocative. And what you said is, I help storytelling um, for sales teams to help use storytelling to help improve their sales. Yeah. Or something yeah. to that effect. Yep. That that like micro addition is all the difference in the world because one go, you know, saying I help do storytelling is fundamentally about you. And it's like, okay, that's, you know, it, but it's not clear what the value exchange is. When you say this is about companies, sales teams using storytelling so that they can fundamentally sell more, then there's like a clear sense of like what's in it for the customer. And then a clear opportunity to sort of like advance the, the value exchange conversation. So I think that is, that's really, that's great. And that's important. So, you know, for us, for everybody who's listening, it's, it's like, the, there's several sort of tiers here. One is like really understanding, like, what, what am I good at? What, what's the value that I bring to the table? And then 70% of the time spent listening to understand the person that's on the other side of the conversation and then your job to be strategic is to actually map into their world to say, this is how my expertise can sort of solve this thing for you. And really thinking about like, I think if I solve this thing for you, like here's the value to you, you know what I mean? Like if, mm-hmm. and, and that really everything else, pricing and everything else kind of needs to flow away from that. I mean, if you can go in and say, look, I can help your sales teams increase sales by 30% a month, uh, based on their ability to do better storytelling, you know, that we've seen that storytelling correlates to greater sales and that's usually 30% and your sales teams could net net go from, you know, $600,000 in sales to, you know, $800,000 in sales, uh, in a month. And I'll do all that for $50,000 a month. Like that's a good deal for them. Yeah. You know? Um, so, and that's a lot of money for you, right? In theory. So it, I think, It's this transactional kind of view that I I think can really uh, help people advance. But again, like being super specific, understanding the value, like that, those are all the key ingredients to ultimately get to the thing that most people want, which is like a successful business, um, you know, et cetera.
2: Well, and what I think is, what I've also just kind of found almost like funny is, and, and I don't know if there's any way to get to this point other than just by screwing up a bunch of times and figuring it out. And if there's a way to shorten that learning curve i I hope people find that, but and maybe it's listening to conversations like this to shorten that learning curve but But what I've kind of like circled back to ultimately now is well, hey, I started off my career in the advertising marketing world, so I know that world very well. why don't I go back and help that world because I know the ins and outs of it instead of trying to like look at what do I not know and how do i how do I try to learn something new again in order to just be able to do my job and then I've finally like layered on how do I take the uh, like rapper side of me and make this work for business. And it's like my compelling, like pitch or my differentiation is, Hey, I'm, I'm an entertainer and I'm bringing to you a performance mindset. What if you could wow your customers, just like when you see a band on stage igniting a crowd. And that's something that is getting like, I'm having these conversations and it's it's starting to gauge interest. And Again, I, it's it's nothing. I really know. I don't know unless it just took a few years of figuring it out to finally be like, okay, this is how I can put these pieces together and make one one thing for someone.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yep, I think that's great. And I think the other thing is um, part of part of part of again. I think how we'll know we're succeeding, right? So we being all of us and everyone who's listening is when we know who is not our customer and we know also what we don't do. So I, I think you know, a great company could sit with a customer for five seconds and say, you know what, we, we can't solve it. Like in theory, we think that we want as much of the customer's time as possible because we're trying to sell. A, a different view of this is again, like in the context of value exchange, it's like we could sit with uh, Bunker Labs with a prospective funder. In fact, we've done this with somebody who could fund kind of the bunker labs as a nonprofit. But we've been with them for like, we met with this one funder for like a 10 minute conversation. And we're like, you know what, like this is just not a fit. And like, not only is it like, we don't want to waste your time, but it's like, we don't want to waste our time, you know? So like having this sense of like, what, what are the five questions that you would need to ask at the outset to know whether or not this value exchange is even possible. Um, is something that I think I, I challenge everybody for because, um, you know, again, like you might walk into a sales uh, scenario, you know, Raj, with your stuff, and if you said at the outset, I mean, I think the first question should it should always lead with questions, right? So, right. what are your sales challenges? Are you hitting your sales goals? And if the company's like, yeah, we are, it's like great. Thanks so much for your time. Have a great week. Mm-hmm. Like you should not even want to continue to be there because why would you? want to convince them to do something for which they don't think that they have a problem, right? Like you could in theory, but like that I think is just wasting your time. And so I think as entrepreneurs, like we always think about this as like time not having a, a cost to us. And like what we're really trying to do is like convince somebody that they do need us. I think what, what I'm much more coached towards is this volume approach. It's like, it, yeah, you could spend like three weeks convincing one customer that they need your thing for one day, or you could talk to 50 customers in three weeks and try to figure out the one that is begging for it. And you'd much rather get to, you know, I think it's like take the position to be like, how do I quickly and efficiently move to the people for whom the value exchange is going to be the greatest? And, um, it's, it's very rare, but if, if I, I have seen entrepreneurs go into a, like a prospective sales conversation and just immediately be like, you know what? I think I'm wasting your time. I don't want to do that. Here's the kind of companies that I think I would be interested in talking to you. Can you help make some introductions? People are like, so respect that, you know, particularly people that are busy. They just think that that's awesome. And they, they will want to kind of recommend a company that has that, that specific of a focus towards what they're trying to do.
2: I think that's fantastic. Let's, uh, let's, let's wrap up the conversation from there. Uh, so before we wrap up, Todd, let our listeners know uh, where they can find you and a little bit more about Bunker Labs and uh, even Flank 5 and, and kind of what's on the horizon for you.
0: Sure. So uh, yeah, we're at BunkerLabs.org. That's a 501c3 nonprofit organization that helps military veterans start businesses. So if you're a military veteran, and you want to start a business, Or any, actually, even anybody that wants to start a business, feel free to go to the website. We've got an online course you can take called Bunker in a Box. It's pretty slick. We've got classes in person. So there's a lot of ways to get involved. Um, You can email me at todd.connor at bunkerlabs.org. And then I co-founded a business uh, with my brother uh, about four and a half years ago called Flank5 Academy. And it's a great business. Um, We host uh, executive education platforms. Uh, and it's all private labeled. So we go to market as the brand that we're servicing, but we put on executive education programming for those companies. And, um, we really love what we do. It's a lot of this conversation, uh, taken into sort of an extended format. And, uh, Emily Drake runs that company now. She's fantastic. And you can hit me there at Todd at flank5academy.com. And, uh, always happy to be a supporter i'm at tw- uh, todd connor on twitter and try to keep that pretty active as well so yeah let's stay in touch
2: nice and for all of our listeners emily drake who is the ceo of flank five academy we had her as a guest on this show back in season four i believe it was so go back and shout to that out because that was a really fun one <laughs>
0: and you guys i gotta give you guys a shout out you are two of my favorite people in Chicago I think you are thought leaders I appreciate your honesty and your authenticity and I think this is so the right conversation it's like literally it's a conversation I never tire of having for myself like I think everything that we're talking about today it's just I mean even it's like the hair club for men like I'm I'm <laughs> the I'm the founder but I'm also a client like I need this stuff myself so I just appreciate that you guys are always advancing this conversation.
2: Yeah, no, we appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. So to wrap up, then we'll go one by one, starting with Martin and closing with Todd, giving our answer to today's question, which is, Martin, how do you manage partnerships?
1: I think you manage partnerships first. I'll just start here uh, by managing yourself. If you don't have your ducks in a row, um, you're going to attract other people that also don't have their ducks in a row. Um, But if you're specific, they will also be specific. So if you start with yourself, I think it makes everything else down the line much easier.
2: My answer for how do you manage partnerships? I like what you said, Martin. I completely agree with that. And I think I'll I'll, I'll add to that by saying I think a way to help yourself get your own ducks in a row is to kind of remove yourself from the situation and just look at like what's another business? What's another organization? What's another person who's kind of doing the same thing I am? And how are they operating? And would they do the same, like would they putz around like I am? Or would they, like what, what, what steps would I give to them if I was advising them? Because one of the things I think happens is, when it's us, it's really hard to like self-diagnose and self-treat ourselves. But you can easily look at another person's venture, career, business, whatever, and be like, well, why haven't you done this, this, and this yet? Have you thought of this? So I think it's almost like you take yourself out of the scenario or out of the situation, and you just ask yourself, like, if I were to advise someone else on this, what would I tell them? And I think that's how you start to figure out your own ducks in a row. Todd, how do you manage partnerships?
0: Well, how do you manage partnerships? Everybody needs partnerships. Um, You can uh, run the risk of wasting tons of time with the wrong partnerships. And you've got to cultivate a sensitivity about what could be the right partnership and quickly avoid those conversations that won't yield the right partnership because it will uh, sink you in terms of time which is your most valuable resource so everyone needs partnerships you got to avoid the wrong ones you have to find the right ones partnerships are fundamentally a value exchange as martin said you cannot know the value exchange equation if you do not understand the value that you bring so it, that demands I think introspection, which Martin said, and it also requires external perspective, which is, Raj, what you said. I would add to what you said to say, I think even beyond stepping back and looking at your own life, I would absolutely ask the people around you for their point of view and prepare and beg them to tell you honestly. Um, If you try to go about the world offering value for something that you do not really do well, Uh, two things will happen. Number one is you will feel insecure in that conversation because you actually can't represent the value that you're offering. Number two is um, the partnerships that you establish won't actually be successful. So you've got to get grounded in like, no kidding, where can I shine? And then get to the work of figuring out the organizations that need uh, that value that you bring. Because when you find that match, it will be right. It will be powerful. The good news is everyone has value, so everyone has a role to fulfill, every organization can have a role to fulfill, um, but it won't be to being all things to all people, it will be for a hyper-specific focus. And so uh, encourage people to dig deep to figure out what that is and then get after it to, to find the place in which you can truly unlock your best, uh, your best self and your best potential, which the world needs.
2: Todd Connor, as I have said before, when you talk, I take notes. today was no exception
1: (laughs) thank you so much
2: thank you guys I love you guys this is great that wrapped up our conversation with Todd Connor Todd thank you so much for joining us my man sharing your wisdom which is always appreciated and giving us something that we can take notes on Did you, the listener, enjoy this episode? If so, the best compliment you can give us is a rating and review on iTunes, as well as subscribing to the show on whatever platform it is that you listen to, whether that's iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or the many other podcasting platforms. Ratings, reviews, and subscriptions help more people find the show, and therefore more people get to discover their inner awesome. For full show notes, references, and resources discussed in this episode, as well as Todd's contact information, Find it all listed at the brand new www.discoveryourinnerawesome.com. While you're there, check out our over 70 episode archive and get schooled to some of the knowledge we've kicked over the last couple years. Alright, that'll do it for this one. Season 6 continues to roll forward with new episodes every Monday. Thank you again to Todd Connor for joining us on this episode. For Martin McGovern, I am Raj Nation. You have been listening to the Discover Your Inner Awesome podcast. We will see you next time, but in the meantime, take care and be awesome today.